Take your Bible and let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter this morning, we begin a new series through this letter. 1 Peter, we'll look at verses 1 and 2 together in just a few moments. Are you ever embarrassed to be a Christian? Think about that for a moment. Probably not an answer we'd say yes to in a room like this. But maybe throughout the week as you're around unbelieving friends or family or neighbors. Are you ever embarrassed to be a Christian? Maybe it's just a thought that passes through your mind. Do you ever feel uncomfortable being out of step with modern society or culture? Does it ever bother you that people sometimes see religion in general and Christianity in particular as unintelligent? As an intellectual crutch for those who are unwilling to just believe the science. Do you ever wonder if it's worth it to be so out of step with friends, maybe family members and co-workers who think your views as a Christian are antiquated and naive at best? Our world thinks it narrow-minded for someone to say there's only one God. And he deserves our worship. They think it's unloving to restrict others' beliefs and condemn them as wrong. What they want to believe is fine. Is that unloving to say there's only one way? Some today say that the Bible's views of marriage being between a biological man and a biological woman are not just bad or antiquated. They're wrong and harmful. And even dangerous. The same goes for a biblical view of abortion. Our world thinks only stupid, fanatical, and even dangerous people believe such things anymore. Are you ever embarrassed to be a Christian? How do you feel and respond to finding yourself out of step in this world? We don't want to be viewed as odd or old-fashioned or weird by others. We don't like feeling ostracized. It's extremely easy for us to just go along with popular opinion. And though we might not espouse it ourselves or promote it, we just be quiet. We don't want to argue against it. And we say, well, we don't want to be obnoxious with our beliefs. It's also natural for us to place all of our priorities and time and our treasure in the things of this earth, in enjoying here and now. As humans living in this world, we're all tempted to value the pleasure of our temporal existence far too much. It's as if there's this massive magnet that keeps us tethered to the temporal things of this life. Christian, where do you fit in this world? How are you to view yourself? What is your identity in a world that is not friendly to one who's committed to following Jesus Christ? What's your identity? And what perspective does God's word give us that will help us persevere against growing and greater hostility in a world that cares nothing for Christ and his commands. It's not being an alarmist to recognize that today in our culture, the world is growing farther and farther away from God. They care less and less for your beliefs as a Christian. 
letter of 1 Peter is written to a group of believers who are facing hostility in this world. This is a general epistle in that it's not written to a single church family, but rather this is written to a group of believers located in Asia Minor in the first century, what is today known as modern Turkey. Persecution is starting to rise from the world around them. This area is controlled by Rome, and the emperor at the time is Nero. And though his persecution isn't physical yet, it's not spread all throughout his empire, it's becoming less and less popular to be a Christian, and that's what Peter's going to talk about. These people are not yet facing great physical persecution such as Peter has faced in Jerusalem, but it will only be a matter of two or three years before Peter himself will die crucified on a cross. And less than a decade before Israel, or Jerusalem in its temple is destroyed. In this letter we're told that the people are being ostracized, slandered, criticized, maligned for their strange faith. In Jesus. And just like today, like all times, unbelievers just can't understand why someone would commit their lives to following Jesus. That just doesn't make sense. So, in the book of 1 Peter, suffering of this kind, taking ridicule, being ostracized, that kind of suffering is the dominant theme in the book of 1 Peter. Suffering can be disorienting and hard to bear. It can cause a Christian to wonder whether following Christ is worth it. Maybe I should just be quiet. Why bother? Why choose to be considered strange and out of touch? Peter's going to write this letter to comfort, to encourage believers living in a world like this to endure the hardship because of the joy And the glory to come because of who they are in Christ. Our text this morning, we see this lesson. God calls his people to endure as chosen exiles in a hostile world by his grace. We're called to endure. Do you feel like in our current climate, you need to be encouraged to endure? I think it's likely that we all feel that a little bit more and more over the last year or several years. This word from God is an encouragement to us to stand firm in his grace. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. First Peter 1, 1 and 2. And this is God's word to us, his people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect or chosen exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's ask for God's blessing as we look at this passage together. Father, we come before you confessing our need. We're a people whose mindset needs to be reshaped by the truths of your word. Our identity needs to be retethered to who we are in Jesus Christ. Lord, it's hard for us to live in this world. We confess we are pulled into the pleasures that we see for this season. 
And yet, Lord, we recognize that we were not made for this life. Because we are yours, we were made for the life to come. Help us to value that and see our identity as you define it here in your word for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we'll focus on two main subjects in this brief introduction to this letter. Two main ideas or subjects, the author of the letter, and then secondly, the audience. First, the author. The very first word of this letter introduces us to the author. It's Peter. We know him. He's one of the most well-known of the apostles. He's an apostle, he says, of Jesus Christ. Now, being an apostle is different than being a disciple. A disciple is simply one who follows after or learns from a teacher or master. But an apostle is one who has been authorized as that master's spokesman. He's his messenger. Peter is a messenger of Jesus Christ sent into the world, commissioned to go into the world with the authority to speak on behalf of his Lord. And even as we begin with such a simple introduction, this is to remind us, it means that we're to hear and receive this letter as a letter from the king himself. It comes to us with the authority of our Christ and accurately represents his word to us. This letter then doesn't just represent good advice for us. It doesn't matter whether we immediately relate to this or not. It's a binding and authoritative word for us to know and accept and even treasure and then obey. At the end of this letter, we see Peter's purpose in writing. Turn, if you would, over to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12. By way of introduction, we'll give you the purpose of the writing. We read there in verse 12 of 1 Peter 5. By Silvanus, that's Silas, a faithful brother, as I regard him. And here he says why he's writing, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, this letter... These truths is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. If you turn back to chapter 4 verse 19, we have perhaps an expansion of his purpose in writing or it fills out more of these main themes that he's going to come back to again and again. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer, there's that theme, according to God's will. It's not an accident. Let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this letter is written to help you trust your God in the midst of a hostile world. It's to help you hold the rope to continue to walk with him, to not give up. Secondly, we see the audience, the audience. There's two main ideas here in this audience, and this will control really not just this message, but control how Peter addresses these people, how he addresses us through the rest of the letter. First, he calls them the elect. This letter is addressed to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, who does Peter mean, and why does he choose this phrase, this really two-word title? In the original language, the word elect is an adjective. So it's telling us you are chosen as exiles. This is God's choice that you're exiles. But it also does come back to what it means to be chosen by God. 
Because the reason we're exiles is because of how we're related to God through Jesus Christ. We're exiles because of our union with him. Describe the kind of exiles or strangers that Peter is addressing. In the New Testament, this word elect is used 22 times. And it always refers to people chosen by God to be included among the people of God as recipients of great privilege and blessing. Now, as we, just as an aside, as we begin a new book of the Bible, as we study this letter, I want us to transition in our thinking between what we looked at in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, as we look at an Old Testament narrative, we're examining the characters. We're looking for what God is doing in the story. But here in a letter, the way we read this kind of literature, we're looking for the main point, the argument that the author is making. And here in this first verse, and really throughout the book, he wants you to see yourself through this lens as an elect, a chosen exile or sojourner in this world. This is important and foundational as we begin this letter. Now, if this doctrine of election is inherently challenging or even troubling to you, let me offer three clarifying principles to help encourage you. This isn't meant to be troubling. And this is God's word to us. And that's always good for us. And so often we cloud issues like this by running past what the Bible is doing with a concept like this. So let me help us fence this in a little bit as we begin. This idea of chosen is all throughout 1 Peter. First, God always tells us that we are chosen to magnify his love for his people. It's meant to tell us something about him, his initiative towards sinners. It demonstrates his divine love in bringing sinners to himself, of rescuing them from their sin and blindness. We would have no relationship with God if it was left up to us. Paul says we're dead spiritually. We cannot pursue God. You cannot chase God if you're dead. Second, God never offers this word of comfort to those who are living in sin. This isn't a word saying you're chosen, so live however you want to live. We're told we're chosen for the purpose of highlighting his glory and his grace to sinners. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. We, as a body, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. That means we were brought into this family. This was his idea before we initiated it to live like people changed with the power of the gospel. We're to walk in them. And number three, God tells us this truth after we're saved. It's meant to humble us and assure us and comfort us. This isn't a truth to tell us how to view other people outside of the family. This truth rightly understood could never, ever remove the motivation to obey his commands to share the gospel in all the world. If you've come to believe that's what this means, you've misunderstood your Bible. It never, ever means that. We want to share Christ with anyone that draws breath. No one 
is excluded from this message of the gospel. If you're struggling with why God chooses who he does, you're perhaps not grasping the biblical reasons why he's revealed this to us. I want to try to illustrate. This is hard for us in a lot of ways. How God works in salvation. We're not supposed to try to parse that out and figure out every detail. But I do think, I think we can try to understand this in the way that God means for us to hear it here in this text. This week I had the honor of performing the wedding of John and Bailey King just two days ago. Both of them made a choice to focus their love and commitment on a single person. That's what the vows are about at the wedding altar. As they made their vows and affirmed that choice, they were not making a statement about the unworthiness of all those people that they had dated before. This wasn't communicating, well, they're just a bad person and that's why I'm not here at the altar with them. No, it's an overwhelmingly positive statement. The focus is on the one whom they did choose to marry. It's a positive statement of a loving choice and commitment to a relationship. That's what Peter is telling this church. That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us this morning. If you are his, here's what he's saying. He loves you. You're not an exile because he doesn't love you and he wants to punish you and he wants your life to be hard. He's going to explain how this is a good thing for you. He chose to bring you into his family and give you life. If you look at verse 3, it says this again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. He caused it by his mercy. When you're struggling and when you tempt to doubt his goodness because you're facing hardship and adversity from the lost world around you, he wants you to be anchored by his love to his love by this truth. That's what he means when he says, no man can pluck mine from my hand. You're mine. I've chosen you. I've brought you into relationship. Throughout the Bible, the term chosen or elect is the intimate term, the relational term, most often used to refer to those whom God loves and has brought into his own family. So Peter wants us to know right away, here at the beginning of this letter, that our relationship with God does not depend on our ability to hold on to him, but rather on his ironclad resolve to hold us fast. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that comforting? To know that your God holds you. Now there's requirements to that. We obey and honor him because of that fact. But we need to be convinced of that truth. We can persevere and stand firm. Because we know his sovereign grace will sustain us. Secondly, he calls us exiles. We're elect exiles. We're to understand ourselves as strangers in this world. We're strangers not because we're odd or strange. Believers are exiles and strangers in this world because they live in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange. How unusual it is for someone to give their life to this carpenter from Nazareth. 
Abraham uses this language for himself. This is a term that's used all throughout the Bible. This idea of stranger or exile or foreigner. He says, I'm a foreigner and stranger among the Canaanites. In Hebrews eleven 13, we're told that all the Old Testament heroes of the faith from Abel to Abraham recognized that they were strangers and exiles on the earth because they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. This particular word exiles does not mean that they're all forced to move from their homes, though certainly Rome did that at times. So that might include some of the people, but not all of them. Nor does it never mean that they didn't interact with their neighbors, that they didn't truly have a home and care about those around them. That's not what this means. The New American Standard translates this phrase as those who reside as aliens. Christians are to see themselves as temporarily residing away from their homeland. Their homeland has changed. Think of Pilgrim and Pilgrim's progress and that process that happens to him. As he first recognizes the burden of sin on his back. As he meets evangelists and he puts his faith in Christ and that burden goes away. And then throughout the rest of the book, he's headed to the celestial city. He interacts and cares for people on the way, but his home, that's where he's headed. It's not here in this life. Believers have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They're no longer to view themselves as citizens of this world. How we view ourselves matters. They have a new allegiance, a new future, a new citizenship, and that new identity bears itself out in their actions. It's important to understand the distinction here. This exile status does not come because we choose to live morally upright lives. The more extreme we are in our behavior, the more exiled we look, right? That's not the idea. It comes because we've pledged our loyalty and obedience to King Jesus just think about it. There are plenty of other religions that mark out their people by their religious rules and duties. But that's not what we're talking about. Certainly we'll live differently. But what makes us exiles is our king and the fact that we are his. We're strangers and exiles because of that relationship. He changes our status in this life. He changes our desires to be tied to this earth. This is what John means when he tells us to love not the world. For the Christian, this means then that he has different priorities. He should not be consumed with money and possessions. They're temporal. It means he has different values. He's not consumed by the power struggles and all the fears surrounding the politics of our current moment. It means he has a different future. He's investing his life in the things that matter, in the life to come. Does that describe you? Therefore, he commits himself to a church family. He invests in them. He's willing to open his mouth and share the gospel because he knows he can move through that embarrassment that comes in the initial moment of sharing the gospel for the sake of sharing Christ and the good news of the life to come. This doesn't mean that we're passive or resigned from this life. It doesn't mean we don't participate in our politics. It doesn't mean that we're pacifists. It just means our hope, our demeanor isn't focused on this life as though this is what really matters. 
And suffering in this life is a benefit because it helps remind us that we will never be at home in a world that rejects Jesus as king. Suffering is actually, Peter, going to say, a good thing for us. It helps us detach ourselves from this world. To be in exile means that you never feel quite at home. Now, this reminds me of Jenny and my first Thanksgiving. We were traveling on a ministry team at the time, and the rest of our team went to their respective homes. We had several days off, and they went to their homes. We stayed in uh, the city where we were last at, and we, we sought to get some rest. But we were in a city we didn't know very well, and we weren't with family for the first time in our lives on that holiday. And we felt very alone and isolated. And in a way, I think that's how we're supposed to think about our relationship to this world. But in another way, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. We're not alone. We don't have to be isolated. It's just that this is not our home. For most of us, when we think of an exile and being told where to think of ourselves as an exile, that leaves us with more of a negative feeling than a positive one, doesn't it? We don't want to be an outsider. In the Old Testament even, the people of Israel became exiles because of their sin. But Peter is trying to use this idea of a sojourner or alien as a metaphor to highlight that we're not to make this world our home. It isn't meant to be a negative picture. To be in exile doesn't mean we're being punished, but that glory to come with Christ should make life here and now on this earth far less appealing and attractive. What we're saying is we have greater things to come and we really believe that and that's where we're setting our hope and that's where we're setting our focus. The most dominant theme of this letter is suffering, but perhaps the second most dominant theme of the letter is glory. And just as it did for Christ, suffering and hardship later leads to greater glory. Verse 1 tells us that Peter is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. To what does the dispersion refer? Well, it certainly could refer to those believing Jews who are pushed out of Jerusalem by persecution. But both here and in James 1, the dispersion refers to Christians in general and their new identity in the world. How do we know that? How do we know this isn't just a Jewish reference? The question is, is Peter writing to only Jewish believers? Well, it seems best to understand this as a letter to mixed congregations of both believing Jews and Gentiles. We know this because of some of the things Peter writes in this letter. He writes in chapter 1, verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your fathers. That's not referencing the feudal ways of living under the law. It's living as Gentiles. This is made clear in 2, verse 10. He says, once you were not a people... That can't be referring to the Jews, but now you are God's people. That means he's brought you into the new family. The point is that believers throughout time and in any location in this world are to see themselves in this way as elect exiles. Is that how you view your life? This is temporary. This isn't what you're living for. Paul highlights this idea, this theme as well. In Philippians 3.10, he writes, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's two extremes to avoid as we consider what it means to be exiles. We've touched on it a little bit. On the one hand, we're not to attach or tether ourselves to this life. We're not to live as if it matters, as the Gentiles live, that all pleasure and satisfaction is found here. But neither are we to isolate ourselves from the world. If you don't know any unbelievers and they can't criticize your conduct as a Christian, you're probably too isolated. We still care for the lost around us. We still want to do good and engage ourselves in our society. We want to care for our city. Do you know your neighbors? Do people know your testimony? Are you living it out? Are you speaking it before them? First, in verse 1, Peter is telling us who we are. Now in verse 2, he's going to tell us how we came to be elect exiles. There's three things, three phrases that he points to. They're Trinitarian in nature. They're not going to be on the slides, but you can follow along. First, we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Each of these prepositional phrases highlight an aspect of the work of a member of the Trinity. And each phrase refers back to the word elect in verse 1. Even though that's an adjective. Because it's saying you're an elect exile because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So first we see the source of our status as elect exiles. The source is the foreknowledge of the Father. Now the word foreknowledge certainly includes the idea that God can see what will happen in the future. But we should not understand this phrase simply to mean that God knew ahead of time what would happen in the heart or the choice of a sinner. That's not what foreknowledge means. That God would know someone means something far more personal than just that he knows something about their future decisions. One commentator writes, the cause of their salvation is not that they reached out to a distant God, but that God chose to relate to them and form them into his own people. This word is covenantal. It's relational in the Bible. We see this illustrated all throughout Scripture. This is a word all through Scripture. Think of it in Genesis 18, 19. God somehow landed on Abraham. How? Where did we get Abraham? God chose Abraham. In Genesis 18, 19, God says of Abraham, for I have chosen, or more precisely in Hebrew, the word is known. I have known him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Do you hear that? Even in that, he's saying, I want Abraham to be a distinct person who obeys the king so that I can honor myself through this relationship that I've made with him. Listen to how God uses this word of his relationship with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. He says, before I formed you in the womb, before you were even born, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Foreknowledge cannot mean God sees somebody's decision in the future and then he acts. God initiates the relationship. We see this word used again of Jesus in Acts 2, 23 in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. 
He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. This is his, his choice. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God is active in this verse. He doesn't just know something that was going to happen. Jesus is delivered up according to God's plan. And finally, look down again in your own passage, 1 Peter 1. Look down at verse 20. It tells us that he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This cannot mean that God knew what Jesus would do and then he acted. No, we know that can't be what this is. This is a triune God acting, determining to act together. We must see this as personal and covenantal and relational in this verse. Later in chapter 2, he's going to describe Jesus as precious and chosen. And because we're in him, that's how God views us as precious and chosen. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. We can read this phrase this way, to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter describes our relationship to God in a familial way. He is our Father. Do you hear that? He could have said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Creator. According to God, the foreknowledge of God the sustainer, the omnipotent one, the almighty one. But he says the father. Do you deserve to call God father? How were you brought into such a relationship? Were you wise enough on your own to see and value him in that way? Only the spirit can open our eyes to see that. He initiated this relationship Now, we're in for quite a series if there's so much emphasis on such a controversial subject, aren't we? But what I want you to see very clearly is that there need not be a controversy for us in these terms. If you have an argument, make it an argument with Peter. These are the words he, under divine inspiration, chose to use. This passage includes these words, elect and foreknowledge, not not to lead us to try to figure out the mind of God in salvation. He's telling us this for our comfort. This doctrine is for our comfort. God loves his people and pursues them. If you don't know Christ this morning, he wants you to know he will save you. If you come to him in repentance and faith, this offer is given to all who will hear the gospel call and respond. You have a response to make to the gospel. This isn't eliminated by these truths. Why does God choose to bring any sinner into his family? That's the question we're going to be asking for all eternity. Why would God bring any sinner into his family? What grace? Why would God pursue Israel knowing how foolish and stubborn and unfaithful they would be generation after generation after generation? God explains his reasons in Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. He says, for you are a people holy or set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his 
treasured possession. He's going to use that same phrase in 1 Peter about us. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you are more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. And that means like the least. You weren't significant in and of yourselves. And here he tells us why in verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose Israel? Because he chose to love Israel. That's what he says. Why does God love me? Because he chose to love me. That's encouraging. That's assuring, isn't it? Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Do you know why you love God? Because God knows you. He made you his own. John says it this way. We love him because he first loved us. Why are you in exile in this world, in this life? Peter answers, because God loved you and pursued you even before you loved him in return. You're in exile because he made you his very own. Second, chosen by the sanctification of the Spirit. The second phrase highlights the means by which he's made us his own, by which we have salvation, by which we can be called Christian. We've been made holy by the work of his Spirit. Believers have been consecrated, provided with a righteousness not their own, by the Spirit of God. One author notes they've been called to form a distinctive community with a singular mission. To be called holy means that they, like Israel, have been set apart for a special purpose in God's saving plan. Do you hear why we need to hear this? We've been saved for a purpose. It's not to gather the most cars or the nicest house or to decorate it the best way. It's to serve Him. It's to make much of Him. The choice of God to redeem us is made real by the faith of believers. But even our faith is a gracious gift from God's Spirit as He stirs our hearts and minds and awaken our dead souls to our need of Christ. He convinces us, we're told, of our sin. He convinces us of God's righteousness. He convinces us of coming judgment on those who refuse to repent. Why are you in exile in this world, in this life? Because God's Spirit has made you holy. And He continues to set you apart from the way that you used to live. He continues to call you to live a set-apart life. Third, you're chosen for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. Here we're told the purpose as to why we are chosen exiles in this word, world. We're chosen for obedience to Jesus. But here we have this second rather confusing phrase. And if you get into the technical details of the grammar, it's very confusing as to what Peter's doing, including this for the sprinkling with his blood. So what, what does this mean? I think the best answer is that this is a reference to Exodus 24, 3 through 8. I don't expect you to be intimately familiar with the details of that text. I'll summarize it for us. In this passage, we read of the formal ceremony in which God initiates the Mosaic covenant with Israel. Israel has been called out of Egypt. God has now given them his law. And now it's time for them to say, we are his people, and he to say, you are mine. It's a formal covenant ceremony. It's unique in the history of Israel. 
And part of that ceremony is their response in this ceremony that as a people, they declare everything the Lord has said, we will do. They receive the revelation of God and they respond. We will obey. And they say it twice. And then to solidify that covenant, they do something strange that we wouldn't do today. Once they've made this pledge to obey, then they're sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. It's thrown all over the congregation. It's put on them to ratify, to solidify that covenant promise. We are his and he is ours. So here's the point in verse 2. God's people have been brought into a new covenant relationship through the blood of Jesus, the ultimate and final sacrifice, the Lamb of God. The law in the old covenant could not transform the hearts of sinful man so that they wanted to obey, but through Christ and this new covenant, we can and we do want to obey. Because we've been chosen in Jesus, God provides us with this desire to obey him. He's confirmed his covenant commitment to us through this blood. Think of it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We see that blood establishing again our relationship. We're reminded of what he's accomplished for us through his blood. The relationship he established demands obedience to Jesus. We've been chosen for obedience to Jesus. He is our king. We must obey, but we want to obey. It's woven into the fabric of this new covenant. Why are you in exile in this world? Because unlike the world, you've been brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ through the covenant of his blood. Because you've been brought into this relationship, you desire to obey him more and more as you come to know him and love him. Is that happening in your life? You see, not only are we to aspire to be elect exiles and see ourselves as elect exiles, this is supposed to also provide for us a test. Are you living as an elect exile? Somebody chosen by God to be a part of his family? Do you desire to obey him? Is his spirit at work in your heart? Do you know the Father and love him as your Father? How does our triune God want this truth to shape the way you view yourself now in this life? Well, these truths are part of how grace and peace are multiplied to us. Notice that's the last phrase in verse 2. Grace and peace. Do you see how this would give you grace later this week? To remember who you are because of the work of Jesus? Do you see how in the midst of a world filled with turmoil, this stabilizing truth gives you peace? What do you need to know when you're struggling in your walk with Christ? When you're doubting God's goodness because you're facing opposition or hardship? This is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't change us by saying, well, take two of these and call me in the morning. It says you got to change the way you think. What you believe about God. What you're focusing on. What does God offer to help you get up tomorrow and face your week as a committed follower of Christ? No matter what's on your plate. Peter says you need to know that the Father, Son, and Spirit have all participated in making you his own.
One pastor puts it this way, in the strongest way possible. Peter has told us the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is behind all of this. The hidden counsel of the eternity trinity has planned for us to be known as his elect exiles. The ancient of days knows your name. Isn't that comforting? Can you believe that? He's accomplished all of this through the sacrificial work of Jesus. So you're not your own. You were saved for a purpose. Peter will tell us of that in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a new people, a royal priesthood. You're to be serving a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He loves you as his own so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, again, raised you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When you're tempted to be lazy in your walk with him this week, remind yourself, I am his, a chosen exile. When you're tempted to be selfish and serve only yourself, remind yourself of who you are. You're his chosen exile created to obey, to make his priorities your own. If he values a body of believers, how can you devalue them? When you're tempted to give into lust, recall that you're his child because he's chosen to love you and he's called you to good works and obedience to a Christ who would sacrifice himself for you. When you're tempted to keep your faith to yourself this week because you're afraid of what others might think, consider that God wants others to come into this same family relationship that he provided to you and he wants you to be his mouthpiece. Our passage this morning, we learn that God calls you to embrace your identity in both attitude and in action as chosen exiles in a hostile world. Who are you in this world? Who does God intend for you to be? How do you view yourself? How, do you, how you understand your identity will shape the way that you live. The way that you respond to hardship. The priorities that affect every decision you will make this week. It's all coming back to who do you believe you are? The Holy Spirit this morning calls us to embrace our identity as chosen exiles. Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice in the truths of your word. Peter writes of Paul that there are many things that he wrote that were hard to understand. And we feel the same way about much of Peter's writing. Lord, but I pray that we would help, that you would help us to understand your word with the intention for which you gave it. Help us to be comforted by the truth that were yours by your own initiative. Lord, and that truth doesn't leave us to be lazy or careless or flippant about our relationship. It raises the stakes. 
That because you would save sinners, we must obey you. We must grow in our love for you. We must not live as those who do not know you. Father, there are many in this room. In my heart, we are prone to live carelessly, to lose sight of our identity, to devalue it, to fail to recognize that the triune God of heaven has brought us into a relationship. Lord, help that truth to permeate throughout our lives, into our mindset, into our actions and behavior and beliefs. Grow our convictions that you're our God and we are your people. And that shapes the way that we're to live. By your spirit, may you continue to grow us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Believers, our identity is found in Jesus Christ.